we're not really evolutionarily designed to communicate through text. Human beings were designed to communicate through the voice. Nicholas Epley, he ran an experiment in which he had people read opinions that they disagreed with. And when they read those opinions, they were 60 to 70 percent likely to say that the other person disagreed because they were stupid and they didn't understand the core concepts. But if they heard someone say the exact same opinion in their own voice, then they were more likely to say the other person disagreed because they had different experiences and perspectives. So there's something that we recognize in the human voice that forces us to humanize the other person, that forces us to recognize the other person as another living human being with a different separate life that is not triggered by reading text. So if all we're doing in social media is reading text all day and not hearing human voices, then it doesn't surprise me at all that we are dehumanizing each other. Hello everyone, my name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence or people who just have an amazing insight into a world of influence that we don't get to see every day to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now I'm going to start, I want to start this episode with a bit of an announcement. This, this episode is going to be the last episode of Inside Influence, not forever, fear not, but for 2019. We've, we've been on air now for two years, can you believe it? And come rain, shine, tech malfunctions, childbirth, or recording in cupboards during a blizzard, we've loved delivering every episode, every two weeks that we've been on air. Now this year, I've decided to do it just a little bit differently. And we'll be taking an extended break over Christmas. However, normal programming, actually, no, scrap that, bigger and better programming will resume on the 15th of January, 2020. 15th of January, pop it in your diary. Let's get ready to go for a brand new year. Now, just as a, as a quick word to the creators out there, this is, I believe this is important to say because you will know what I mean when I, when I talk about that essential tension between consistency and creativity. And the irony is that while they're both 100% vital to doing anything worthwhile, they often make uneasy bedfellows. They don't live side by side in an easy, non-tension-free way. Now, I don't have a universal answer to that balance. And to be honest, I'd be watchful of anyone that claims that they do. However, what I have learned over the years is that taking an intentional break or a deliberate pause is often the moment that things just naturally move to the next level. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's the space. I don't know if it's the natural cycle of things from, you know, death to rebirth, um, whether it's the autumn that is required. I, I genuinely don't know. However, as someone much wiser than me once said, this is your train set, so drive it. And that includes choosing when it's time to take a pit stop. So that's what we're doing. And um, while we peer under the bonnet, check the oil, figure out which parts of the show we want to supercharge for next year, I'd actually, I'd really love your feedback. What would you like to hear more of for those that are first time or for those that have followed our entire journey? What would you like to hear less of? 
how could we be better? How could I be better? How can we support you? This is a big one. How can we support you in having more of these conversations out there in the world? Because that's what this is about. All ideas are good ideas. So hit me up. Social, my website, or just good old-fashioned webmail at content at juliemasters.com. Okay, public announcement over. Let's move on to today's guest. Now, here's the question. Is there any more important skill than being able to sustain a coherent and confident conversation? I mean, can you, can you literally think of any other superpower that holds more possibility for your life, for your business, for your relationships, for us as a community, a nation, or, or a planet? As a business owner, a leader, and a parent, I can promise you that any time I've looked at the priorities of skills that I need to develop, and I, I do do that regularly, for myself and in those that I'm here to support, it hits number one on that list every single time. So imagine if you could broach that one subject, that subject that's painful or uncomfortable for you, or do it in a way that was going to deepen rather than fracture your connection with that person. Or imagine if you could ask for what you wanted or stand up for something you really believe in. Imagine if you did that consistently and then you fast forwarded a year. What would your life and your relationships look like now? Which would still be here? That's an interesting one. And how fiercely open-minded would you have become? And probably for me, more importantly, in the world right now, where it seems like often intolerance and our inability to hold a constructive dialogue with those that we disagree with, that hold different views and values than we do online and offline. What would our teams, communities and governments look like if we knew how to successfully tackle hard and yet vital topics? And do it with curiosity, respect and an intention to move forward together rather than just scoring points. Yeah, someone someone once once asked me, would you would you rather be right or would you rather be in relationship? Now when they first said it I had no idea what they meant. But it has stuck with me and buried its way deep into my subconscious and for me now the answer is always the latter. And let me tell you that's hard. That's a hard commitment to keep and especially when you feel like the stakes are high and your drive to be right is very strong. But there, there is a difference between mindlessly complying, just agreeing to keep the peace, and being open to other perspectives, seeking to understand other people. You don't have to agree in order to accept. And once someone feels truly accepted, now that's a place when bridges start to be built. My next guest is what I would consider to be a certified master in the art of having a powerful conversation. She is an award-winning journalist and author, and throughout her 20-year career in public radio, she has anchored programs including Tell Me More, Talk of the Nation, All Things Considered, and The Weekend Edition, which are some of America's top-rated radio programs. She is also the author of We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter, synthesizing everything she has learned about how to navigate respectful and important conversations. As an NPR host and journalist, um, Celeste Headley has interviewed hundreds of people from all walks of life, from Nobel Prize winners, truck drivers, plumbers, to heads of state. I'll definitely be asked, ask her in this conversation which are her favourites. 
sometimes on topics that fit with her personal viewpoints and other times with people and ideas she disagrees with deeply. And once again, it's the latter where the most surprising moments can be found. In today's conversation, Celeste and I danced, yeah, I'm, I'm going to say danced on this one, our way through the science, the art, and some of the profound moments that are possible when you start committing to having conversations that matter, including staying open enough to be amazed by everybody you meet. And that means everybody. And I, and I know full well you're picturing some person in your head right now that you've already pegged as an exception. Yes, them included. How, how to actually begin difficult conversations is like often the hardest part, right? Where to start? The toughest conversation she has ever had and what she would do differently if she could do it over again. How by both focusing on and verbalizing, important thing, verbalizing, your intent in a difficult conversation has the ability to change everything and act as a rudder when things get off track. The power of the human voice on a physiological level. Now, this bit quite seriously blew my mind. In fact, I think if you listen carefully enough, you will probably hear my brain scramble when we got to this point. This is definitely a rabbit hole I'm going to be jumping in over Christmas when I'm doing my reading and researching and getting juiced in all the areas of influence that are coming up next year. And the role of empathy, when to use it, how to use it, and why it starts with a commitment to, to stop saying the phrase, I know exactly how you feel. Now, if I was going to end this podcast year, 2019, on any note, it would be this one. We, we need to get better at having difficult conversations, openly, frequently, respectfully, and intentionally even when we don't know what to say, and especially when we don't agree. So let's start here. Pour that cup of tea, grab your chai frappe latte or what, whatever floats your caffeine boat. Is that a thing? I don't know. Either way, pick a conversation in your life that deserves either a second or a first attempt. I want you to hold it in your mind and get ready to learn from one of the best on the planet when it comes to navigating what should come next after the words we need to talk. One of the fiercest, funniest people I have had the pleasure of spending time with, Celeste Headley. Welcome to the podcast, Celeste Headley. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're so, so welcome. I, I'm going to, I want to kick off. There's a question that I always kick off with, and it's this one. It's whether you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert. And brief history for anyone that's, that's new to the podcast, the reason for asking this question is just, there seems to be a bit of a, let's call it a story, a story out there that in order to be more influential in order to have your voice heard, in order to command a conversation, you need to be an extrovert. And so I'm doing a bit of an experiment. I'll pass that over to you. So this is an interesting question to start with because I am, like the vast majority of the world, an ambivert. Um, I keep hearing this term, and it was, it's a yeah. brand new term to me. Yeah, you know, I mean, you got to remember Carl Jung, who invented the terms introvert and extrovert, 
he he left out the middle, right? He he talked about the very extremes of the spectrum, but he himself said that somebody who was a pure, pure introvert doesn't exist. Like that person would be completely insane. Um, most people are ambiverts. And actually, one of the people who's an expert in this topic and, and writes about it a lot is, is Adam Grant, the organizational psychologist. Um, but ambiverts, that just means that sometimes you're really great in a group and sometimes you like need need to be alone. And sometimes you like talking to a whole bunch of people and sometimes you don't want to talk to anyone. You know, an ambivert is um, someone who is adaptable and flexible. And if they need to be outgoing, they will be outgoing. And if they don't need to be, they won't. And that is what I am. Um, and, you know, I do public speaking all over the place. And I don't know, you probably have the same experience, but you'll go out and you'll do a speech and you have a really great time and a ton of people come up and talk to you and shake your hand and they all want to have conversations. And when I'm done and I'm headed home, I want no one to talk to me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want you to look at me, touch me, refer to me. <laughs> and isn't that isn't that just an awkward place? Like I've... I've worked with a lot of speakers. I, I do it myself. And it's that awkward place where you, you're in a room full of hundreds of people. You've done your best to connect with as many of the people in the room as you can, with the best that you've got. And then you step off the stage, and, and quite rightly so, those people then want to come back and, and connect with you in the same way. And your, the internal experience is quite often, I'm just... I'm so spent now. Like I'm, yeah. I feel like I need to go and sit in a quiet room now. Yeah, because if you've done your job properly, properly, you've left it all out there, right? You know, a regular keynote is like an hour. <laughs> it's, it's a long time to talk. <laughs> yeah, so you're pumping out energy um, for an hour. Uh, minimum, and then everyone wants to come up and talk to you afterward. And that's awesome. That also means I've done my job because I've connected with them and they have questions and they have stories and that's fantastic. And so you'll, you'll pump out that energy for another hour or so. <laughs> um, but then it's really, the well is dry. Yeah. <laughs> that's all I've, that's all she wrote. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's specifically to you and your world, just on, while we're on this. There are also those moments, and I don't know if you have them, where you're you're not feeling it on that day. For whatever reason, that that particular day you're waking up and you're like, this is a day where, you know, I I just, I can't feel the mojo. And those days often still require you to show up. More often than not, you you would have to show up to an interview. You, You have to show up. There's still a stage and an audience and a commitment there, be it a small shareholder meeting or be it a large 300 people auditorium. Do you have any... Any advice of how to flip state in those moments? Yeah, I mean, for me, when that happens to me, I make sure that um, I spend as every single minute before I go on being quiet. And I don't engage in conversation. I don't answer my phone. I certainly don't go on social media um, because we actually know from research that the energy you invest into social media is actually the social energy that you need to interact with other people. So I do not look at social media. I don't answer email is another thing that can drain your energy. I just completely conserve until it's time to go on. And then I pump out all the energy I possibly can. And then I shut down again. So just being really clearly delineating what happens in each of those states. 
Yeah, and I think a big mistake people make is that they don't realize that answering email and checking Twitter is actually uh, making a withdrawal from your your social energy account. We don't think of it that way because we're not talking on the phone. But in fact, if you were to talk on the phone, uh, you know, oftentimes that actually increases your energy in terms of neuroscience at least it generally gives you boosts of serotonin and sometimes oxytocin the neurotransmitters that make you feel good talking to someone on the phone is actually quite good to refresh you Um, whereas those other things like texting or or social media or email is going to drain you so um, I don't get into long conversations with people I know but definitely I will go to a coffee shop and um chat with my barista and then go sit in the corner and be quiet and, you know, give other people compliments because <laughs> that makes me feel good too. <laughs> and, um, I will, I'll just try to only do things that refill my battery. That's, that's a very underestimated form of refilling a battery, giving other people compliments. Oh yeah. I think it's fantastic. It's total magic. When you give other people compliments, not only does it make them feel good, but then they make you feel good because you've just made somebody happy and it's cost you nothing. (laughs) You don't even have to lie, right? Like uh, there's always something you can compliment other people about. So yeah. I'm actually trying to teach my daughter at the moment to, to actively give people compliments in, in a space that we're in, in a cafe that we're in, to go over and say those are beautiful shoes or, you know, thank you for doing that. And she loves it. She absolutely loves it, which just goes to show that it, it, it can be innate in who we are, just something we forget to do. Yeah, and, you know, it, it, interestingly enough, we um, human beings at heart are, are mostly kind Right. I mean, it doesn't actually take us that much if we remember to compliment people. It doesn't actually take a lot out of us. That is our essential nature. Um, It's just that we do get way too distracted by other things. You know, one of the best explanations I've ever heard of this is there's an app that's for meditation, actually, um, called Headspace. Um, And the guy who runs it is a fellow Brit. It's Andy Pettacom. And he says that you have to think of it. I think of kindness this way, but he, have, he said you have to think of it like you're sitting on the bench, a bench in the park, and that's your blue sky. Like it's always there. There may be clouds in front of it, but behind it all, behind that other stuff going by, maybe there's wind or rain or whatever, but behind all of that, there's always blue sky. And that's sort of how I think about our human kindness. It's there. Just a question of remembering. Yeah, it's just a a point of like always sort of keeping in touch with it. One of the first questions I wanted to ask you about, because it just seems such a beautiful place to begin, is to talk about your grandfather a little bit. And he sounded like just an incredible, incredible man. But also it seems like you learned a lot from him or absorbed a lot from him about the ability to find common ground with a diverse group of people. Yeah, I mean, he was um, a quite elderly when I knew him. He was born in 1895, and I was born basically in 1970. Um, so he was born um, not too long after the Civil War here in the States, and he was an African-American um, at a very tough time. So he was an African-American growing up in Arkansas, which is in the South in the U.S., um, not long after the Civil War. And he became one of the most Ameri- the most important American composers 
ever, probably in the top five most important American composers. Um, he's called the Dean of African-American Composers because there's so many things that he did that he was the first person to do, the first black man to conduct a major symphony, the first to have a symphony performed by a major orchestra, the first to have his opera performed by a major company, and the list goes on. Um, but he, in terms of what, he, I mean, I just loved him. I didn't realize he was I important, actually, until he passed away and everyone made such a big deal out of it. But I just thought he was the best grandfather. Um, but one of the things that was so influential about him was he occupied this very difficult space. So he was a black man with relatively light skin, um, writing classical music, which was not an accepted place for African-Americans. And it not only wasn't accepted by white people, they didn't find it appropriate for a black man to be writing art music. They would have rather he played jazz and blues. But he also took a lot of heat from um, African-Americans who felt he was betraying his heritage by trying to write white music. So he occupied a very difficult space and he did it with such grace and humor and kindness and compassion. I mean, my grandparents' home was the kind of home where people came by all the time without calling. <laughs> you know, they just stopped by all the time. And I have actually tried to create my house to be the same way. And I have to force people to come over <laughs> because they're always trying to arrange it and schedule it and put it on the calendar. I'm like, I'm not like that. Just come over. Um, <laughs> but it's really hard to get people to uh, do that these days, but that's the way their house was. And he was so optimistic and he truly believed that music because it um, touched people on a more visceral elemental level, more primal level, I guess, he truly believed that music was a way for him to bridge the gap between the races and bring about a, a, a racial harmony that obviously he didn't see. So yeah, he was, he was a big influence on me. And was there a, was there a quality about how he approached, I'm just, I'm thinking about my own grandfather. I'm thinking about the people in my world that have had that kind of impact on me. And there's often a quality. There's a quality about how they approach a situation, how they approach the majority of human beings that, that cross their path. Was there a quality for you that you can define that really stood out? Um, for me, it would have been gentleness. He was very gentle. Um, he was just, he was fairly quiet and, um, and, and gentle. You know, I mean, I think... Although he had absolute confidence in his own abilities, and if you were to ask him if he were a good composer, his his answer to that question might make you think he was arrogant. But overall, he was a very humble person. You know, he had such high regard for his work as a composer that he would get up every single morning and dress in a three-piece suit with a vest and wingtip shoes and a tie to go into his own back room of his home and compose music at his own piano. Like that's how much he respected what he did, but it's not something that, you know, he would, he would never have bragged about that. I don't remember him ever mentioning this. It wasn't something that he did for effect. That was just what he quietly did every single morning is in, in his own home. I think that's probably the quality I think of most. The respect of the craft, respecting the mastery when it arrives, 
or to help yeah. him arrive. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you had said that he left you with a feeling that there must be something amazing about everybody, that there was truly something amazing within everybody if you could, you know, stick around or create enough space to let it come out. And that got me thinking, do you, do you still feel that way? Have you held on to that feeling throughout your career? Oh, absolutely. It's been even more solidified and strengthened in me. And part of that is because of 21 years as a journalist. Um, You know, when you're a young journalist, you want all the important stories, right? Quote, unquote, important and to talk to the important people. And then as the years go by, you realize that some of the best conversations you have are with so-called nobodies, right? Janitors at at, at elementary Taxi drivers. Taxi drivers are incredible storytellers. Um, people from uh, uh, truck drivers uh, have amazing stories. Um, and you start to realize that what, the people you thought were important aren't as important as you thought. Um, and the people you thought were nobodies were, are really somebody. They have important stuff to tell you. And sometimes really wise um, advice. So, yeah, I think it's gotten stronger. And you said, you know, you've spent a career, 21 years, talking to people as a journalist, Nobel Prize winners, truck drivers, you mentioned plumbers, heads of state. Um, what's, been the most, what's been the most surprising conversation you've had during that time? Um, the most surprising, I mean, that's difficult to say. I, I mean, the, the surprising ones are always the ones where I think I know what they're going to say. And they, they don't. They have a different story. Um, and a lot of times it's because I've made assumptions about them based on whether I agree with them or not. You know, I've had some surprising conversations with people who are basically racist. You know, I'm, I'm black and Jewish, um, and actually part native American and a bunch of, I mean, you literally can't tell a joke without offending me. Right. I mean, it's like, (laughs) I'm what they mean when they say American melting pot. Um, But I end up having to have conversations with people like who are members of the Sons of Confederate Veterans or white supremacists. And um, I'm not saying I would ever endorse or agree with what they're saying. But sometimes because I've made assumptions about them, they surprise me um, that my assumptions were so far off. And that's a great thing. That's actually a wonderful experience. I wrote in my book about a woman that I met at the airport because I was reading a book on a very, very racist city and county in Georgia. Um, And she started telling me about how sick and tired she is of people calling her a racist. And in my mind, I was like, okay, here we go. Right. Um, Because racists never want to be called racist. But as she explained her experience and what she's been going through and how she got through her thought process, it really surprised me how much empathy I had for her and how much I understood where she was coming from. Um, I still didn't agree with her, but I, I so understood how she got to where she was at that moment in the airport. And that was a surprise. We're going to talk about some of the the tools from the book that you that you've gone through which I think are incredible but just I just want to go like hone in on on what you just said there there's that moment right usually in a either in a difficult conversation when we're hearing something we don't want to hear or something that we disagree with or something that we find painful in one shape way shape or form there's this moment where we feel ourselves freeze you know like you just described that moment the moment where you feel yourself go okay this is where this is going and I don't want to go there 
or I've been here before. I know how I, sh- I know how this turns out. How do you, after years of doing this, how do you catch yourself in that moment? Do you catch yourself in that moment? I mean, it, it is difficult, right? And sometimes you're not going to be able to. Um, but the more I try to get people to think, um, not in terms of being perfect at that, but in being reflective. So let me just say two things in that moment, I have gotten myself to the point where I try to be as mindful as possible. So that's my first step, because if you're not mindful and present, then thoughts, you're going to say things and thoughts are going to come to you without you actually taking note of them. And, and that's when you start maybe regretting what you said or regretting what you thought. So the first stuff is to actually pay attention to the thoughts that are going through your head. Um, and the second thing is that later on, reflect back. Reflect back on the conversations that went well. Reflect back on the conversations that could have gone better. And ask yourself, where was I mentally when that conversation started? Why did I say that thing that I swore I wasn't ever going to say again? You, you've also said, and, and part of the the premise of the reason we're talking today is that we are we're more polarized, more divided than we have ever been. It, I mean, that just seems strange, strange and true to me, because we have more access to more information, more opinions, more more stories than we've ever had access to. You would think that we would be more open-minded than we've ever been. Yeah, it didn't work that way, did it? It didn't, no. That that experiment failed. Yeah, and in fact, they find the more they test it, the more they realize that social media actually polarizes you instead of um, brings you closer to the center or makes you more willing. It, 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 the more time you spend on social media, the more ideologically isolated you will be. I mean, the statistics, the odds are. And um, that's unfortunate. But... I I would my guess at to why that is is because we're not really evolutionarily designed to communicate through text any type of text even in a newspaper or written in a book that we, you have to remember how recent that is that we had printing um, for millennia and millennia human beings were designed to communicate through the voice. That's why we have all those boring epic poems like Beowulf is because (laughs) that's how they told stories. They didn't have novels. That's what they had. They had songs to record their history. We communicated almost entirely through the voice. And as we begin to study it more and more, we realize what, how many implications that has. So for example, um, Nicholas Epley and his colleagues, he, he teaches up in uh, Chicago he ran an experiment in which he had people read opinions that they disagreed with. And when they read those opinions, regardless of what form it was in, they were 60 to 70% likely to say that the other person disagreed because they were stupid and they didn't understand the core concepts. But if they heard someone say the exact same opinion in their own voice, then they were more likely to say the other person disagreed because they had different experiences and perspectives. So there's something that we recognize in the human voice that forces us to humanize the other person, that forces us to recognize the other person as another living human being with a different separate life that is not triggered by reading text. So if all we're doing in social media is reading text all day and not hearing human voices, 
then it doesn't surprise me at all that we are dehumanizing each other. And is that, is that quality, do you, do you feel like that's emotion? You know, it's very hard. You, you can't text with emotion. You can use emojis, you can use exclamation points, you can use as many tools as you like, but the, the complexity of emotion that comes through with the human voice. I'm not sure. I mean, yes, obviously that's involved in it. It's difficult to truly know. I mean, just think about it this way. Um, if you've ever called a friend and all they say is hello, and you say, what's wrong? That's how fast some very complex and nuanced information is transmitted to your brain. That's how quickly a pair of human ears can register emotional upset in another human being. And, and the more we study the human voice, the more miraculous the voice becomes. Because there's other... Um, research that has been going on at Princeton into a phenomenon called neural coupling, N-E-U-R-A-L, coupling. And basically they would have one person come in and they would have that person tell a personal story. In one instance, uh, she was telling a story about a a disastrous school dance. And um, then they have a whole bunch of other people come in and listen to this person telling their their story from their life. And they're all hooked up to fMRIs, functional magnetic resonance imaging machines. And what they find is when um, the listeners are listening in an engaged way, like they're focused on what they're hearing, the brain waves of the listeners and the speaker sync up exactly. And they even found that in some instances, the listener's brain anticipated changes in the speaker's brain by a fraction of a second. So there's this empathic bond created um, through the, the function of the human voice and the human ears that can be replicated and replaced by nothing else. That's incredible. And... You wrote, uh, yesterday, sorry, my brain's going a thousand miles an hour on that. The, yesterday I called a girlfriend of mine who, she lives in the States. We, we went to university together. We haven't spoken in about six months. And I called her just to say hey. And literally she picked up the phone and she didn't say anything. And just in that two to three second pause, I knew that something was wrong. And I literally said, are you okay? And she said, no. And I said, just give me five minutes. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to clear whatever I have now. Give me five minutes. I'll call you back. And that was with no words. Yeah. Just, just the quality of the silence. It's amazing, right? It is incredible. And we forget that. And then all of a sudden we somehow think that email is more efficient. How could email possibly be more efficient than what you just described? Yeah. And, and if you... There's a harnessing of that. There's a harnessing of the intention behind words, the, the pauses behind words that I think is a fascinating part of science that I'm not sure that we've even began, begun to understand. The, exactly what you were talking about, the transfer, the, the coupling. Yeah, the mind melt. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you, you told the story, which I loved. It's about a, a high school teacher. I've, I'm, I'm not sure I ever knew his name, but I, I, I don't have his name. And it was an experiment that he ran to try and figure out a conversational competence. Yeah, and he was trying to get his stu- his students to uh, be able to speak um, without looking at a script, um, and and so he would have them sort of uh, 
memorize things. It was a teacher named Paul Barnwell, and he wrote about it in The Atlantic, the magazine. Um, and he realized that they they just, so many of them couldn't do it. They'd never been asked to speak off the cuff, to just know a subject really well and talk about it. If he gave them, if they he's got, he said, okay, get up in front of the class and read your report, they would have been fine. But that's not what he did. He said, study this thing until you feel you know it well enough and then get up in front of the class and talk about it for a few minutes. And um, the the quote of his that I used in my TED talk, and uh, pardon me, I'm, I might get this long. It's been a long time since I had to have that talk memorized. But he said he realized that uh, conversational competence was probably the single most overlooked skill in our schools, that kids are constantly engaging with ideas um, and with each other even through their screens, one screen of an or another, but they almost never are asked to uh, improve their skills interpersonally, just standing in front of another person or talking to another person. And, you know, I was thinking about that more and I was thinking, you know, the hardest, just trying to put myself in the shoes of, of a younger person or the shoes of a, of a big grown person. I think sometimes I feel like the hardest thing is to know where to begin. You know, it's the it's the knowing how to start, the knowing the knowing how to begin. When when it comes to conversations, especially conversations that matter, high stakes conversations, do you do you have any tools with that where you know how how to begin, how to broach? You know, the biggest uh, the, the biggest barrier uh, in those kind of conversations is that you have to somehow um, marry the two stories that you both have. And what we do, so if you have a disagreement, for example, it's because your version of what happened is different, substantially different from the other person's person's version. And that's almost entirely, usually the source of conflict. So, you know, and this happens all the time, right? If you go and and see a parade and that someone else also saw, you both saw a very different parade because you, you, your attention was drawn to different things. And the same is true when we disagree with one another. Um, I focused on certain things in what happened and you focused on other things. And so the, our versions of the story are wildly different and we have to somehow marry those versions together. So in broaching those topics, what I will usually say is, okay, um, I know what my, what my story is. (laughs) Um, and I want to hear what your story is. So is it okay for me to, I'll tell you my version of events and then you tell me what you saw that happened. And then we can begin from there. I think that's a beautiful um, piece of mindfulness to be able to articulate, you know, I have a story and you have a story. Um, Brene Brown used this, used this tool that I've actually used in my own marriage a couple of times, which is stopping things and saying, okay, I'm going to stop this here because I, I'm beginning to, I can feel myself telling myself a story about this. And I want to just check in if my stories if my story is true. And so separating yourself out from your own story. Yeah. And you know, one good way to make yourself aware of when you're telling yourself a story is, you know how you can talk yourself further into anger. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. 
So something happens and it makes you mad and you just keep going over it and going over it and go, oh, yeah, and then this and then this and then I totally forgot about this. And you can talk yourself into an absolute rage. That's not you noticing stuff. That's the, the, the events haven't changed. You've just changed your attitude toward them. That means that's a, that is a glaring red warning sign that you are telling yourself a story and that story is not particularly productive. Uh, you know, so much of this is about perspective. It, it say, let's say, for example, um, that you needed to talk to your boss about getting a promotion and it took you a while to get that onto this calendar. And then the day it was supposed to happen, you get a cancellation and a, a quick note from his secretary saying, hey, can we reschedule? And you're mad, right? You're mad. And you have reason to be mad. And then you meet with your boss and your boss says, I'm really sorry I had to miss our thing. Um, my son got in a car accident and was being rushed to the emergency room and I, I dropped everything and my secretary canceled everything I had that day. Now, nothing about what happened changed, right? <laughs> you still got canceled on on a very important meeting at the last minute, but you're not mad about it anymore, not because the facts changed, but because your perspective changed. And this can happen in the arguments that we have with other people too. So when you say, I want to hear your side of the story, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for their version of events that is going to change, not the facts, but your, how you view them. And going in with an open mind enough to be willing for there to be another version of a story. You, you've also said, um, we can talk to people who disagree with us and we must. And when I read that, a part of my brain that, you know, I like to think is the, the part of me that I try and make show up most days was like, absolutely. But there was another bit that, you know, <laughs> there, was, there was totally another bit that I could just feel exhale in that moment and just go, really? You know, because some conversations, if, if I'm honest, just feel like a giant black hole that will swallow up either way too much time or way too much energy or swallow up if gone there an entire relationship. But you're right. You know, if we can't have these kind of conversations with people that we love or people we're connected to then then our ability to have them on public forums on subjects where, you know, futures of entire nations are at stake is, is next to nothing. What are some of the tools? Well, actually, now let's go back. Why is it important? Just talk to that part of me that just wanted to run at that point. Yeah, so um, the most important thing is that as we avoid having these conversations about politics and religion, uh, it just means we're becoming more and more ignorant about politics and religion. Um, if you talk to only people that agree with you, then you're missing out on a huge amount of information that might make – you may not change your opinion, but you might become more nuanced and complex in your opinion, and you may just know more. Um, but the other thing is is that – we we cannot solve anything without figuring out how to compromise. I mean, almost every democracy is built on the idea that we can compromise. And that's what we're trying not to do. Now, part of that is the fault of our politicians who made con compromise a, a dirty word and tried to manipulate us into believing that if we compromise, we're losing ground. 
that's absolutely the case that that has been done intentionally in many political fields and not just in the United States. But it's also the fact that human beings just don't like to hear things we don't agree with. That's not the fault of social media. That's not the fault of your smartphone. That's not technology's fault. You are a homo sapiens, which means you don't particularly enjoy <laughs> finding out that you're wrong. That's human. And yet, and yet, that is exactly how our species has survived and thrived over the centuries and millennia, is that we function as a hive mind. You know, they, they've proven over and over and over that even the most brilliant genius expert in any field will not outperform a group of diverse independent human minds. That other group of say 15 people who may know almost nothing about the subject will outperform the expert almost every time in terms of problem solving because that is what human beings are designed to do. We are designed to make each other better. And the more diversity of opinion you have, the better you become. Having somebody in your in your workspace, for example, that you can't stand actually makes you better. It makes you less error prone, for example. You go into meetings expecting to have some kind of conflict. And so guess what? You prepare more carefully for your meetings. So even though it irritates you, <laughs> it makes you better in the end. And consensus feels comfortable, but consensus is the enemy of innovation. Which is... The the shame of that is if you look at the, you know, the, as you said, social media doesn't make us this way, but if you look at the algorithms where we spend most of our attention, they are designed to feed us things that only agree with us, which makes it even more important that when we're in our interpersonal communication, we need to seek out differences of opinion. Yeah, absolutely. On all, I fully agree with you. And so let's, let's talk about navigating it because <laughs> there's the, there's the initial kind of overcoming of the resistance and then there's the actual navigation of the conversation the one of the first tools that, that struck me when you talk about navigating conversations that matter is don't try to educate anyone and don't try to change any minds which again That's is right. contra feels contra <laughs> to human <laughs> I nature it, i know it does but think of it this way when was the last time over the course of a conversation with someone you didn't agree with and possibly didn't like when is the last time they made you change your opinion on something? Right. So yeah, that was me. <laughs> that was me. Come on, there must be there must be one. Yeah, there's not, um, and they're not going to change their opinion either. We just have found almost no evidence that over the course of a conversation, regardless of how good your statistics are and your stories and how compelling and convincing you are with your facts, you're not going to change that other person's mind. So what are you doing? What is the point of your conversation if you're literally constantly just beating your head against a wall? Are you just enjoying yourself? <laughs> talking with the talking because it's having no effect on the other person in fact it's probably polarizing both of you more so if that's not the intent if the intent is not to change minds the intent is not for me to force information on you that i believe will shift you what's Cause the intent because it won't what's the what's the intent so you have to stop putting your focus on the other person and changing the other person because you can't the only person who can be changed in that instance by through your effort is you 
<laughs> so if your focus is, look, I don't like this person, but I, I, I'm interested to learn more about how they got here. Then you can learn something from them and then you can be changed by what you hear. And, and it doesn't matter what your opinion of that person is. It's just a conversation. You're going to walk away. But hopefully you'll take with you something that you've learned from them that helps you understand them, that makes you better in articulating your own position, that gives you nuance. It makes you better. It educates you. That should be your goal because there is one thing that we know can change both you and the other person and can change you both profoundly. And that is an empathic bond. What I was talking about before, that neurocoupling, that mind meld that occurs, which is a reflection of the empathic bond that can be created when one human being is actually really listening to another one. If you create that kind of empathic bond, then you can possibly be changed. And maybe they will be too, although Again, don't put your focus on that. <laughs> you know, I tell the story all the time. There's an American uh, musician, a black um, guy who plays jazz piano, very, very accomplished jazz pianist um, and blues and boogie woogie. But in his off time, he convinces guys to leave the KKK. There's a PBS documentary out about him called Accidental Courtesy. And he is so good at what he does that he basically dismantled the KKK operation in the state of Maryland. And again, he is black. <laughs> so people ask him all the time, what are his arguments? Like, what is he saying? How is he convincing these guys? And he says, I'm not trying to convince them of anything. I go to them and I say, you convince me. Do you tell me what it is that I'm missing? Because I don't understand you. So explain. And he says, um, by actively listening to them, I am passively teaching them about myself. And sometimes people just want to be heard. That's, that is amazing. It, the, the quality of, of listening that, that reminded me, there's a Mother Teresa quote when someone said, do you, when you pray, what do you say? And she said, I don't say anything. I just listen. And they said, okay, well, if you're listening, what does, what does God say or what does spirit say? And she says, oh, they don't say anything. They just listen. And we, we, we've lost that in the, in the wanting to be heard. We've lost the ability to listen. Yeah, if we ever had it. I mean, let me give everybody one more out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please do. <laughs> I need Which it. is which is that human beings just aren't particularly good at listening. We just aren't that great at it. And that's not be necessarily because of our technology. Technology is making it worse. But frankly, the, 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 the scientist that we call the father of listening is a guy named Ralph Nichols. And he spent his career, I mean, going back to like the 1950s and 60s, I believe. And he spent his career studying human, human listening. And his takeaway after all those decades was, you know, human beings are just pretty crappy listeners. And if you think about an infant, like there are some species that really do need to listen to survive, right? It's important. <laughs> but not humans. If what's important for us is that as an infant, 
if you're in trouble or you're cold or you're hungry, you need to scream as loud as possible to get the attention of an adult. Some people, that's their strategy for the rest of their lives. (laughs) (laughs) Completely frozen in time. (laughs) Exactly. But this is all just to say that listening is, has to be cultivated and learned. It's always particularly difficult for us. It's never going to be like, Oh God, you're totally right. From now on, I'm going to be a better listener. Nope. (laughs) No, you're not. (laughs) You're going to have to work at it every single day. So you have, you have a son, I I believe. Yes. How do you teach that? On a daily on a daily basis, because I know it's not just once, it would be a thousand times a day. How do you teach it? How do you break it down? So um, I only teach him that stuff by modeling. I try. I mean, I, I, of course, lecture him and nag him, but I try really hard not to. I, um, I try very hard not to give unsolicited advice, but I don't expect him to do something I'm not doing. Like, for example, um like I said, I speak all, I give speeches all over the place. And one of the most common questions I get is how do I get my teenage daughter to put her phone down or teenage son? She always has that phone in her hand and blah, 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 blah. She won't go anywhere without her phone. And I say, well, is that what you're modeling? Do you leave the house without your phone sometimes? Or do you bring the phone to the dinner table? Do you have your phone in the hand, in your hand when you're talking to her? Because if that's what you're do, if if you're not doing that, then you can't expect her to do it. And it was the, kind of the same thing with my son. Like if I expected him to listen to me, then I needed to listen to him. And eventually he got it, and he calls me out on it all the time, which is both irritating and very, <laughs> very gratifying for me. <laughs> there is nothing more beautifully irritating than hearing your own advice parroted back to you. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I want to just want to play devil's advocate for a second, because the what I can hear in in the subtext of this when I'm kind of playing it out in terms of people listening at home is is that that moment where you go, well, this is all very well. You know, this is this is all great. And we're listening with curiosity and we're staying open and we're not forcing our opinions on anyone. We're not trying to change anybody else's mind. But what happens to standing up for what you believe in? Where does that live? Where do, you know, there's not enough people that stand up for what they believe in these days. What, how would you answer that? Because I have no clue. So it depends. A, a lot of times when people talk about standing up for what they believe in, they're talking about standing on principle. In other words, there's nothing really at stake. It's just they are firm in their belief. In which case, I'm confused as to where the argument comes from. Are they are they arguing with someone who doesn't want them to believe what they believe? In which case, that's a deeper problem than that conversation, right? Like here in the U.S., maybe you are someone who absolutely supports Donald Trump, and maybe you live with someone who doesn't. Well, there's nothing necessarily at stake there, right? That's not how you're treating the other person. That's both of you may want the other one to believe the same way you do. And that's a problem for your relationship. (laughs) Like if you go into a relationship thinking the other person has to believe what you do, then you're in trouble already. But it also could reflect just a really wide gulf of values. 
So when people talk about standing up for what you believe in, I have to get specific with them. Like, what exactly are they talking about? You know, if they're talking about maybe someone says something that's really racist or sexist, right? So do you mean that you need to um, explain to that other person that what they've said is wrong? Because I'm absolutely all for that. I do it all the time. I'm very light-skinned. People don't realize that I'm part black. They say terribly racist things in front of me. <laughs> they don't realize I'm Jewish by birth. They say anti-Semitic things in front of me. And I say, wow, that was horrible and offensive. So let's not say that again. <laughs> and inevitably, the person says, well, I'm not racist. And I say, you are, but let's move on. Right? Like, if you have to figure out what's at stake. I, I'm not telling anybody to roll over. And anytime we're talking about these conversations, um, I'm never talking about a conversation in which it's ab abusive at all, either verbally or otherwise. Those, you just walk away, get away quickly. But standing up for your beliefs doesn't mean arguing. Listening to another person gives them no benefit. You're, listening to someone is not endorsing them. So the difference between seeking to understand and agreeing. Yes, that's right. Something else that you've said about these conversations is sticking it out. You have to stick it out. Not throwing your hands up in the air and saying this is pointless, we don't agree. Um, there's, there's also that point, right, where it starts to dissolve. And as an interviewer, you would know when you get into something and you think, I've got I've to bring this back, like I've got to somehow redirect this because it's either gone into a rant space or it's gone into a, a space of, um, you know, it's just one thing has led to another, led to another, and it's just completely, un, you know, it's gone off intent now. How do we do that? How do we stick it out but still hold it in an intentional way so it doesn't just feel like this you know, ocean of complexity that you've got into and you have no idea how to get out of it? Yeah, I tend to I have learned how to not overthink those at all. And so let's say, for example, I'm doing an interview and it's going off the rails. I will literally say, whoa, you know what? We are way away from what it is we're supposed to be talking about. So let me rein this in back in and let me go back to our original subject. That's a great topic for another time. Let's go back to what we were talking about before. Like I've stopped overthinking that stuff. You know, a lot of people don't get into conversations because they're worried about how they're going to end it. <laughs> I think that is absolutely – there are certain conversations I can even think of in my own life where I think that is just a bottomless pit of a conversation. Yeah, and yet if I ask them, okay, so what if you say to the other person, it's been great to talk to you, I'm, uh, you know, I got I to gotta move on or I, I got to go. Do you think they're going to force you to stay there and – like how many times has that happened to you? <laughs> when you've tried to get out of a conversation and just said, Hey, I got to go. And they forced you to stay there and keep talking like that doesn't happen. So for me, it's like, it's a fear based on something that has never really happened. Um, and therefore, you know, you just have to set your, you have to practice just saying, Hey, it's been good to talk to you. I'll catch you again sometime. I got to go. I'm going to move on. I need to get back to work. I got to go to the bathroom. I need to, whatever it is. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> Just say, talk to you later and move on. Um, and I, that's even with your spouse <laughs> or your child. Hey, I got to, there's some stuff I have to get done. I have to stop putting it off. I'm sorry. Is someone calling my name? I, I literally hear someone calling my name. <laughs> <laughs> that's 
right. Oh, I just got a text message. I'll talk to you later. Right. I mean, I, I never heard of that not working. <laughs> but it's also not, it's not being afraid to end it. It's, you know, you are not bound because a conversation has begun. You are not bound to see it out until the bitter end. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's just a conversation. You know, I mean, there's some things that are high stakes. I understand that eagles have sex going like 50 miles an hour as they <laughs> as they plummet through the air and they won't break apart until they've completed the act. And therefore, sometimes they die. Right. Like, it's not that serious. <laughs> This is one of those moments where, I, where I'm thinking, how do we get to eagles? How do we? How do we... <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, fine. If you're an eagle and you're like, I can't break away. Okay, fine. You're not. You're a human. Walk away. <laughs> um, the, the, the last tool that I, that I wanted to cover as this part was the, which it seems like the most simple one. And I'm almost loath to put it in here because it, it, it feels so basic. Yeah, I feel like it is the number one thing that can go wrong which is don't multitask yeah. while you're trying to have a conversation, any conversation, especially one that matters. Why is that so hard not to do? So um, there's a few reasons. So let me just kind of walk through them. First of all, there's still a bunch of people in the world that believe they can multitask. There are actually people in the world that still believe they are capable of paying attention to a conference call and answering email at the same time. That is not true, <laughs> that you cannot multitask, no matter how much you think that you are doing great at multitasking. And this is particularly for women who I'm not going to put the blame on them because not only do women, are women more likely to think that they can multitask, but they're also more expected to multitask. But you can't do it. The human brain doesn't multitask. So the, the dangerous part of this is that multitasking makes all of your work crappier, like the quality of both tasks you're trying to do goes down by a significant amount. Also, your IQ drops by 10 to 12 points because you're basically kind of short-circuiting your brain by trying to make it do something it can't really do. And then one of the most disturbing findings is that over time, if you're a heavy multitasker, it actually causes cognitive damage. I'm not sure. We don't know at this point if that damage is repairable, but it actually damages your cognition over time. So that's the first thing is just full stop. You can't multitask. Please stop doing it. <laughs> We're, we are designed to do one thing at a time, and that's it. But we also happen to know that the, the cell phone in particular or your email inbox on your computer, some people leave their in, email inbox open all the time. And that also, just having it open in the background lowers your IQ because your brain is thinking about that inbox. It's expending energy preparing for an email to come in. The whole time your cell phone is visible, even if you've turned it, turned the sound off so it's mute your brain is still thinking about it <laughs> it's still preparing to respond to a an incoming text or notification so you may think that you're absolutely able to answer a quick text while the other person is talking but you cannot that is a complete delusion 
and it makes the other person mad anyway. Yeah, I was about to say. I mean, how, and also, how deeply, deeply respectful does it feel when somebody says, Not, "Say, well, when somebody says to you, just hold on a second. I'm gonna. I just want to shut this down. I want to close this off because I want. I want to be oh, able to right. hear you. I really want to be able to listen properly. So just give me, give me a moment so I can. Or can we make another time in half an hour, ten minutes, fifteen minutes? Because I really want to listen. Like it feels as the person who wants to communicate something like such a respectful thing to do. Oh, it's so empowering, isn't it? To know that you have someone's full attention. And I do it all the time to where, you know, um, it, my producers would come to me and start to talk to me and I would say, I can't focus on you right now. Let me sh- finish up these things that I'm doing and get back to you in a half an hour. And then when I got back to them, they had my full attention. And it is so empowering uh, when someone is actually considering um, you and how well they can focus on you rather than just making you one of a number of priorities. So the, the opposite, let's just look at the opposite of that. I know you feel very strongly about the line, I know exactly how you feel. Yeah. Yeah, because it's just such a lie, first of all. I, I realize that it comes from a compa- – we, we feel like we're expressing compassion when we say that. But even on a superficial level, when you say, I know how you feel, what you're literally saying to them is that you don't need to keep talking. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I've been there. I understand possibly even more about the situation than you do. That's one of the first things you're communicating. The other thing is that it is not true. So – when something occurs to you, something painful, whether you broke your leg or you like broke up with your boyfriend or whatever, um, immediately after that happens, your brain begins to soften the memory of it immediately. And, and we need the brain to do that necessary work because if at age 40, you still remembered every pain you'd ever felt at the same intensity as when it first happened, you would just be in an insane asylum. You would be dysfunctional. So your brain smears Vaseline on that lens. But if someone comes to you and says, hey, my dog died, and you say, oh, my dog died two years ago. It was horrible. I know just how you feel. That's not true. Two years ago, when your dog died, you don't remember anymore what that felt like. You don't. And it's the same with anything that, that occurs. It doesn't matter how similar the situations are, and they're never exactly the same. They could be just similar. Um, you don't remember what it feels like to be in that situation anymore. you got to let them tell you. And the, the shame in that is because the... It's such a shame because the intent is often connection. You know, the intent is empathy. I want you to know that I know where you're at. The intent is connection. But the result is absolute disconnection. That's exactly correct. And the sociologist Charles Derber described it as conversational narcissism. Um, And there's a certain blindness to narcissism, right? There's a certain cluelessness. Um, So... That's the even further irony of it, that we're doing this thing and we're saying this thing that we think makes us more virtuous. We're imagining ourselves (laughs) as these empathetic people. I know just how you feel. When in fact, all we're doing is getting really creative about turning the attention of the conversation back to ourselves. So what's the, I mean, we've got to talk about the alternative. I know I've 
one of the things that I learned from your work, um, which I think is is a result of, I think, Charles Derber. Uh-huh. To shift that response, well, actually to move the response from shifting the attention to yourself to support. So I sh- right. Shift to support response. That's right. So a shift response shifts attention to you. You can think of it like if you're filming a movie, the camera is switching back and forth between one person and another. Instead of one person explaining what they're going through and the camera stays on them while the other person is off camera listening. <laughs> right? Like when when someone's giving a huge speech in some play, the other person doesn't need to say anything. And and I that's how I sort of like to to compare it that when you're giving a support response you're the supporting player we just hate to think of ourselves that way right like we're always the star of our own show um but in that particular instance you're the supporting character so when they're talking number one you don't have to say anything you can just either listen to them as they talk or ask them questions that encourage them to keep talking um And one of the ways that you can do that through these support responses is someone says, oh, I lost my job. And you say, oh, my gosh, what happened? When did this happen? What are you going to do? What kind of job do you want? What do you need? And, And one of the best questions you can ask, what can I do? Those are all support responses. And you'll notice they're all short, brief questions that begin with a who, what, where, when, why, or how. Right? They're all focus the attention back on the other person. So if the camera does switch to you, it switches to you for like three seconds. For a brief nod. Yeah, exactly. And then back. And then back to Hamlet. The beauty in that, like you said, is that part of being a support role is, is prompting. That's part, someone forgets the lines or someone gets stuck, you, you're there to prompt to ask another exactly question. Exactly right. Exactly right. What's the, what's the toughest conversation that you've that you've had to have and I know that this is one of those questions that's that's a difficult one to answer I just know that there's certain conversations where you lose sleep over them the night before and I'm wondering there's one in particular that sticks out for you in your career um there's it's not the most difficult obviously you know I'm divorced I've had some tough conversations (laughs) um (laughs) uh but the one I describe in my book I actually didn't to go into specifics in the book, but since then um, it became a news item. I was at working at WNYC on a show called the takeaway. I was working with a coworker who was a bully and abusive. Um, Again, these, these things have since been reported on and revealed. Um, And so while this was happening to me, I went to my, I followed the chain of command. I eventually went to my executive producer and it was very high stakes conversation. And I was trying to make him aware that I was being bullied and abused and harassed every single day on the job. And I worked really hard to prepare for that conversation. This is sort of where my whole research into better conversations started because I rehearsed. I knew what I was going to say. I practiced with my husband. Um, I was ready And uh, I went in there to have this conversation and it just completely went astray almost immediately. It was a total debacle and a failure and I got nothing of what I wanted. I wasn't heard. I wasn't understood. It was awful. And (laughs) it wasn't a whole lot long after that that I 
left there. Um, and that's sort of what started me on all this because if if I, <laughs> a national radio host, <laughs> who's literally being paid to have conversations, can't have effective conversations in my own life, then what the frick was I doing, right? So that sort of started me down the, down the research path to figure out how to get better at it. But that's hugely almost comforting in a way that this is such a difficult, such a difficult task for us, for all of us, that even somebody as skilled and as experienced as you finds it challenging. You know, that's a call, a call to action for anybody. Yeah, it's so funny. When I give speeches, you know, I always run through my 10 tips that are outlined in my TED Talk. Here's here's 10 ways to make your conversations better. Um, and it's so funny because one of the most common responses is, oh, no, I do all of those things wrong. <laughs> and I always say to them, guess what? That's what everybody says. So it's okay. <laughs> it's not you. It's us. Can you... Is there an easy way of articulating if you look back at that conversation, at that pivotal high stakes conversation that you had, that you had practiced and practiced and practiced, knowing what you know now, are there some clear things that you would do differently? Yeah, I would never have practiced. Okay. Um, (laughs) I would have just made bullet points, things that I wanted to make sure that I articulated, but by practicing... Um, that's one of the reasons I got derailed so quickly is because you rehearse for a conversation and no conversation ever goes as you rehearse. So they suddenly say something that's surprising or unexpected and you're off script, you know, here be dragons, right? Like it's all, (laughs) it's all off the rails and it was impossible for me to get it back. So I would never rehearse for a conversation and I never have again go in with some clearly defined points that you know that you want to cover and use that right. as a guide. Right. Well, my, I could talk to you about this all day, quite literally, but the, the question I want to, I wanted to finish with today. If there's, if there's anyone out there that's listening who has somebody in their life with whom they disagree or they have a legacy of disagreement or a legacy of no communication, do you have, is there a, is there one piece of advice for them if they want to go back and try and reattempt that conversation again or attempt it at all? Yeah, I would. Okay. So here's the advice I would give. Um, you don't have to talk about that thing you disagree on, even if it's really, really important. You don't have to talk about that. You can edge your way back into that, rec- that, that relationship by talking about food or sports or dogs or plants. You know, there's this, this blog. For a short time, it was a TV show also. Um, can I swear on this podcast? Absolutely. Okay, so the, t- the, sh- the blog was called Shit My Dad Says. Oh, that book. Yeah. That book, literally, I bought it for my dad. Amazing. Yeah. So there's this incredible thing that that the dad says in this book. And he says, listen, don't hang around with the people who don't like you. You don't go to the park and set your picnic down next to the only pile of dog shit. And I view this in conversations like you don't have to talk about that one thing that you're angry about. 
because if you can find an empathic bond with them uh, by bonding over nachos or what beer you like or whatever else it is, you might find that when you work your way around to that subject you disagree on, you both have a different perspective or you both have more empathy for one another and are better able to solve your differences. I love that. Put your pick blanket away from the dog shit. Exactly. exactly. Go sit under right. a tree where there's a nice breeze. <laughs> exactly. Enjoy your sandwiches. Everyone, everyone can agree on nice breezes and trees. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your work. Uh, for anyone out there that's listening to the book, please read it. There's, there's way too many very important conversations that matter that need to be had for us not to have the tools that you have worked on. So thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for your good questions. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you. But it is jam-packed full of all the ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.